Welcome back to Technotopia, a podcast about a better future. I'm John Biggs. Today on the show, we have Paul Vigna. He's a reporter for the Wall Street Journal on cryptocurrencies. This is Technotopia. Are you hiring? Are you posting your position on job sites and waiting and waiting and waiting for the right people to see it? This episode of Technotopia is sponsored by ZipRecruiter, and they knew there was a smarter way, so they built a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. These invitations have revolutionized how you find your next hire. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And ZipRecruiter doesn't stop there. They even spotlight the strongest applications you receive, so you never, ever miss a great match. The right candidates are out there. ZipRecruiter is how you find them. Businesses of all sizes trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. Right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. It is free if you go to ZipRecruiter.com slash techno. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash techno. ZipRecruiter.com slash techno. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Welcome back to Technotopia, the podcast about a better future. I'm John Biggs. Today on the show, we have Paul Vigna. He's a reporter at the Wall Street Journal. He's on the crypto beat. And you're the author of a new book. Welcome, Paul. Hey, glad to be here, John. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So I've been a fan of your work uh, for a while. Uh, You had previous books on crypto, and you've you've covered crypto in depth. What's the new book about? Mm -hmm. Well, the new book. So the first book was, was Age of Cryptocurrency in 2015. And that was really just uh, myself and, and Mike Casey, my co-author. The two of us were here at the journal uh, just writing about Bitcoin. And we had kind of gotten taken with it and interested in it. And that was really just our kind of attempt to sketch out what this is and to get into the background of it, the history of it, and how it came about and, and, and all that stuff and just kind of explain it. Mm-hmm. This book now, this new one called The Truth Machine, which is going to come out in February 27th, it'll be out. Uh, what's interesting is that since we wrote the first one, Mike has left the journal. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mike got really, <clears throat> excuse me, Mike got incredibly <laughs> interested in this topic and decided he wanted to dedicate his life to it and quit the journal, went up and joined uh, MIT's Digital Currency Initiative and now consults and talks about this and, and, and basically just spends his life working on it now. And I still report on it from my perch here at the journal. Mm-hmm. But what this book is about is more kind of taking the the concepts behind Bitcoin and seeing what kind of applications they could have in the in the rest of the world. It's it's kind of more of a philosophical look at it and a look at the future and also a warning about it. And I think that's kind of I actually think the most important part of the book is just that we're we're imploring people to kind of understand that this could potentially potentially represent a large technological shift. There is a lot that can be done with this technology. And if it's not done um, with the benefit of society in mind, it, it could end up being something that is, is not really good. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a sort of inelegant way of stating it. But the, the fact of the matter is technology is neutral. I mean, technology is just technology. It can be used for something good. It can be used for something bad. And what we really want to see is people who want to take this technology and leverage it for the better of society to be the ones that get in control of this rather than somebody who wants to take this this technology and sort of corner it for themselves and use it for their own personal profit. So 
it's really this book is as much as a sort of an exploration. It's also uh, imploring the people to get involved mm-hmm. Interesting. and, so and not to let another, you know, big tech wave come and go without people figuring out what it is and, and using it for the best ability that we can get out of it. This is it, what it sounds like. It's actually fairly interesting the way you're, the way you're describing it. Uh, I'm trying to look for the book. Uh, I want to make a, make a, make a big uh, clacking noise here. Clifford Stoll. You yeah. Clifford Stoll. Uh, he did, he did, the uh, cuckoo's, I, I don't I have to say, I don't, you have to, you have to read these books. He, he did the cuckoo's egg, uh, which was basically him taking down a hacker on his Unix machine back in 1980 something. Uh, it was wow. a fascinating book. It was one of the first like real crime crypto crime or like, um, online crime thrillers where this uh-huh. guy was, he was, he was measuring the time it took for a packet to go from Germany to, uh, to Stanford, uh, because it was going so slowly he could do it in milliseconds. And, yeah. Uh, so his first book was that, and then his second book was Silicon Snake Oil, which came out uh, a couple years, 1995, it looks like. Mm. Uh, Silicon Snake Oil, and that was him basically. Uh, that was a Jeremiah against uh, against the internet, right? So he was he said, yeah. "Let's look at this a little bit more carefully. This is pretty dangerous stuff." Uh, I mean, we kind of see what, we kind of see what we have wrought. What are the potential wow. dangers? Uh, what are the potential dangers that you see uh, coming out of crypto? Yeah. I- I mean, the, I guess the danger is going two different directions. One is anarchy, and one is just extreme centralization. Um, I mean, you could end up with there's this whole argument about this technology, um, whether you have, and I'm kind of going to, if you're not familiar with this, anyone listening, mm-hmm. this is going to kind of seem to be out of left field. But there's this whole argument about, whether you have permissioned or unpermissioned Bitcoin systems. Mm-hmm. And basically what that means is the whole idea behind blockchain, um, blockchain technology, is that what you essentially have is a ledger system, an accounting system. It is an online accounting system. The advantage, the real sort of, the reason that this technology represents uh, an upgrade over what we have is that rather than having a lot of databases controlled by individual players and they all have to be rectified against each other. Think about like a a global supply network where you have a lot of different independent contractors and they all have their own databases. What you can have in this situation is a database that is maintained across a network of computers where everyone has the same copy of the the ledger. Everyone has the same copy of the the transaction history Mm -hmm. and it all gets updated across all those databases at the same time. The advantage of that is that you get some, you get greater transparency into whatever it is you're recording, whether it's Bitcoin transactions or a supply chain or land titling, whatever it is, you get a, a better insight and transparency into what's happening and it, and it can all be done faster and upgraded immediately. The question is who controls that? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the whole permission versus non-permission thing. Uh, Bitcoin is what is called a non-permissioned n- blockchain network. Sure. So anybody can download the Bitcoin software and run a node on their computer. It's not cheap anymore, but I mean, anybody can do it and and have access to that, be able to check the transaction logs, you know, immediately. Permission networks are what you see a lot of banks trying to build, where they're trying to build a blockchain-based system where you do have this distributed ledger, but it's one where they control it. And the question is, are you building something 
that is beneficial for society at large, or are you just kind of replicating systems that we've had before and you're just kind of throwing a couple of bells and whistles at it? Mm-hmm. So that, I mean, <clears throat> in very broad outlines, that's kind of what you have. Um, and then think even worse, you know, if you're in some kind of totalitarian state where the state had utter control over this this online ledger, what they could do with it and the insights that they could have into it. So it, again, it's all very theoretical. It's all, and I, <clears throat> excuse me, John, I think this is important too, is people have to keep in mind that this is all extremely nascent. Mm-hmm. It is so early in this. Um, people like to use the, the comparison to the dot-com boom and say, well, you know, Bitcoin is at 1995 of the internet or, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. I think it's even earlier. I think it's the 80s or the 70s. I mean, this stuff is still basically in the experimental phase. So you have an early technology, you have potential for it to be used well, potential for it to be used badly, and, and that's kind of where we stand. And we're just asking people to get yourselves involved. What, what's, what do you think is more likely? You're, uh, you're, you're deeply into this. Is it, does, it, does it all go to zero and just fail, or does it continue in a, in a, into a trajectory that we have no, we have no con- conception of? Yeah, yeah. I mean, personally... And, you know, again, it's important that I, I, I stress this, that, you know, I'm, I'm an objective observer. I don't hold Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. I don't hold any other currencies. I'm not involved in any projects. I mean, I'm just a reporter looking at it from the outside. But, but my personal opinion is that this technology is going to become a significant part of our online lives. And I think ultimately it will be, it will be beneficial. Mm-hmm. I just believe that. I, I don't know. I mean... As, as cynical as I can be about the world, uh, I, I tend to think that there's something here that actually can be good, and I think it will be used for that. It may not be, you know, I, I think what you end up, any, a lot of these technical waves, and the internet itself too, right? I, I mean, you, you started off with a lot of utopian ideals and a lot of really pie in the sky. This is going to be the greatest thing in the world for everybody. And it turns out not to be necessarily the greatest thing in the world. And now you look at the Internet and there's this big problem of basically it's controlled by a couple of companies. And whether they're good or bad is, is largely determines the value that we're getting out of it. And there are problems with Facebook and you know propaganda and advertising and, and how much data your data they control. Yeah, But I think this technology will... I, in the long run, and again, I do think you have to look at this with a 10, 20-year time frame. I think in the very long run, this will be a net positive on a societal level. I just I, I think that. I really, really do think that. I mean, that's fascinating. When a, when a journalist is, uh, is, <laughs> is, is, yeah. is, is bullish on a topic, either you run or you, uh, or you get, get deeper into it. You you mentioned something. People should uh, people should start taking part. People should uh, should uh, involve themselves. How how do you involve yourself? Yeah, I think I mean there are people who go down this rabbit hole and quit their jobs and join a startup and move to an accelerator, or move to Silicon Valley. Uh, you don't have to go that extreme, but I think probably this is almost at the point where it is starting to touch every industry. And I know that because I have reporters from just about every beat at the journal and just about every bureau in the journal journal starting to come to me and say, 
uh, I need to do this story about blockchain and mm-hmm. how can I understand what it is. I need to do this story about this company on my beat that is exploring this thing. What is it? You know, so it's starting to affect people on a lot of industries. So if you're in the law industry or the accounting industry or the healthcare industry, mm-hmm. or if you're even a barber shop, a startup, you know, wherever you are, I think the potential is there for you to educate yourself on this, figure out where it can kind of be plugged into whatever it is you're doing and how it can help. Mm-hmm. So I don't think you need to not, you know, look, if you want to, God bless you and good luck. If you want to go the whole, I'm going to up in my life and become a Bitcoin <laughs> evangelist. Uh, you know, God bless you. And I hope that you come up with the killer app and make $10 billion. But you don't have to do that. Um, you can do it in whatever walk of life you're in right now. Hmm, Just kind of explore the technology and what it could mean for your business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I agree completely. I think we're, I'll, I'll get a, I'll get questions uh, over at TechCrunch that people want to cover these things. And, and a lot of the startups that are coming out now, they're not they're not doing uh, raises anymore. They're doing these, trying these ICO things. And I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm watching as, as you're speaking, I'm actually watching an ICO uh, implode uh, in real time. Oh which yeah. Is, which is really which fascinating. One? Which one? I want to write about it. <laughs> I'll, send, I'll send it to you later. Send it uh, to me later. Yeah. You'll get a big I kick out know. of it. You'll get a big kick out of it. This, uh, it's, it's fascinating to watch these things. And it's like the, the ICO phenomenon itself is absolutely fascinating. It really is. I mean, you're talking about, again, like look at the pros and cons of it, right? The pros are you're giving startups access to more capital than they could raise in the private markets. Mm-hmm. You're giving average investors sort of that opportunity to get in early to a startup, which they never would have otherwise. But on the other hand, you are completely flipping on its head the entire idea of the capital markets. Mm-hmm. And the idea of the capital markets is that you efficiently allocate capital to companies that can use it and produce some kind of societal benefit to it. I mean, that's the idea of the stock market, the bond market, the all of this stuff. The whole capital market is supposed to move money efficiently to companies that can make the best use of it. And how do you make the best use of it? Well, it's you prove yourself. You, you come up with a product, you sell somebody on it, they give you a little bit of money. You build it out. You show that it works. They give you a little more money. You scale it up. You, you know, and you have this whole kind of staircase system mm-hmm. to ulti- your ultimate exit, which is you go public. And then you have a lot of owners and a lot of money, and hopefully you're doing great things. Now you have a situation with these ICOs. These become such a mania. These companies are raising 10, 20, 30, 150 million, 250 million, 70. Like they're raising insane amounts of money. Essentially, the exit strategy is the capital raising. Mm-hmm. And what does that do to their incentive to actually build the product that they are proposing? <laughs> I, I personally think it destroys it. I mean, if you get $300 million, you're done. And you're a 25-year-old kid who only has a white paper? You are done. What's your incentive to, to build the thing? So I, I think the ICO phenomenon is fascinating. I think the potential is great, but I think there are problems with it. And I think you are either going to have the market itself shake that out or you're going to have regulators come in and, and shake it out for them. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't want to go too far down the ICO rabbit hole. This, this is a, there's an entire new a whole podcast that could be dedicated to all this craziness. Oh, yeah? But, uh, okay. But where does, what does this world look like in 20 years? If you're, if you're sitting in front of a green screen terminal in 1975 – 
uh, and you're looking forward, would you be able to predict what happened with the internet? And are you able to predict from what you see right now what's going to happen in this space? Yeah, I, I, if you were able to be that person in 1975 that predicted it, mm-hmm. uh, you probably can count on one hand the number of people who are like you. Mm-hmm. I mean, who could have predicted? You know, although uh, if you are, you are probably a science fiction writer. Chances <laughs> are, William Gibson, maybe. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> as soon as I was saying that, that's what I was thinking of. So, uh, I, I mean, I would not. I would not say I'm smart enough to predict accurately what this is going to look like in 20 mm-hmm. years. Um, but one thing I think is is the interesting place to watch is the sort of interaction and the friction between centralized and decentralized systems. And what I really think is interesting about this is I think for the first what this really does for the first time is it gives the it provides the potential for a lot of things we have done throughout, you know, the last, uh, if you want to talk about the modern world, right, and just go back 500 years or whatever, since the start of the nation state. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really gives you the, the opportunity to take a lot of things we've done that always had to be done through centralized systems. You always had to have some central person who could be, in, a, in essence, the trust broker, the person who could guarantee things. You finally have the opportunity to come up with a system of trust where you don't have to have those centralized players sitting at the middle of whatever infrastructure it is. That's going to be a significant shift. Mm-hmm. And even more than the techno- technological shift of that, uh, the sort of psychological impact of it is big. I mean, we have grown up with, you know, the, the idea that you have bankers and government processes and just all these kind of infrastructure thing things it's so deeply ingrained in our in our neurons that you have a central player who sits at the middle of that and just think about money right i mean money itself you have had governments issue money because it's just a better system and it's worked and it's not that it's a terrible system i mean you know you can complain about the dollar all you want. Sure. The fact of the matter is it works. I mean, it works. Good or bad, you know, it's not perfect, but it works. Is Bitcoin a better system? Mm, possibly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, honestly, I mean, possibly it is. Uh, but you have to change people's minds on that. And that is going to take so long. Uh, they haven't even come up with, in my opinion, you, you haven't even had someone come up yet with, the, the quote-unquote killer app, the thing that makes Bitcoin so easy to use that people start flocking to it. You have to come up with that first. Then you have to change people's minds. And, and I, you know, it's interesting. With Bitcoin, you saw it take off and go viral and all that stuff. And what really happened was all the kinds of people who are your more progressive thinkers, your, more for your early adopter types, you know, mm-hmm. they all got taken with it early and they all kind of jumped into it. Once you saturated that group and you had to take Bitcoin out to the masses, that's where Bitcoin's uh, sort of penetration just flatlined Mm -hmm. because people just aren't used to these ideas. Uh, People are – the idea of a currency that is not backed by a government is really alien to a lot of people and and they don't understand it. They don't trust it. Which is kind of ironic because the whole thing is the idea that you can have this kind of trustless system. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So 
I think the potential is interesting. I think, you know, the idea that you can have a decentralized network where you put your, that's what you're putting your trust in rather than a centralized player. I think that's fascinating. And I think the potential for that to be good on, on a very large scale is interesting, but you are going to have to change people's minds about that. And that is, that I think is going to be the hardest thing to do uh, on a large scale over a long time. All right, Paul. Thank you for this. This is uh, this is some good stuff. I want to again. I want I want to bring you and maybe Michael back on again, and we can talk a little bit longer. But yeah, I, I you, you got a lot I, to I was, say. <laughs> yeah, I, I was going to say. I have to be honest. Uh, Mike is better on this stuff than I am, really. Well, no, so we should a, have him back on. I, I think I think this is a this isn't this isn't a long this this wasn't a long play podcast. Uh, in this episode, we talked right. we talked about what was happening right now and. But what is happening right now is quite literally defining the future. So, uh, I think I think we I think we hit our mission here. So it's the Truth Machine, the blockchain, and the future of everything uh, by Paul Vigna and Michael Casey. It's available. This is very cool stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, John, thanks for having me on. I love it. Thanks for joining us. Technotopia is brought to you by Happy Fun Corp. Happy Fun Corp is a design-driven technology company in Brooklyn, New York that specializes in building mobile and web applications for startups and Fortune 500 companies. Whether it's a new mobile or web application that will help people experience the internet in a fun new way, or software that will interface with a new piece of top-secret hardware, Happy Fun Corp is always up to the challenge. Big or small, Happy Fun Corp loves building software and loves working with great people. Come build with them. HappyFunCorp.com